0: Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular Parcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of unhealthy relationships and examining some of the most notorious couples throughout true crime history. We often think of love as something beautiful and selfless. With the support of a caring, significant other, many people grow within their partnerships, becoming better people in the process. But what happens when a relationship is obsessive or cruel? How do these twisted partnerships affect our mindset or that of our spouse? What if you would literally kill for love? Today, we'll discuss the psychological dynamics of a controlling relationship. The relationships of couples who commit crimes together and against each other. Cases of romantic partnerships evolving into criminal partners are very rare. But in those few cases that a couple does decide to commit crimes together, it's usually the result of a perfect storm of intimacy and narcissism. According to forensic psychologist Katherine Ramsland, these couples tend to exhibit a narcissistic edge. This attribute allows them to create a delusion in which they reassure each other that the crimes they commit are not only acceptable, but justified. Similarly, the intimacy this shared delusion inspires only deepens the bond between partners. Forensic psychologist Judy Ho explains that, as this rapport grows, it often leads to even more and more serious crimes. But not all crime duos start with two willing participants, Sometimes these partnerships are born of an uneven dynamic in which one person holds significant control over the other. According to FBI Special Agent Robert Hazelwood, a more dominant partner may coerce a more submissive partner into the murder and mayhem. And more often than not, those compliant accomplices are women. Hazelwood explains that these female partners usually suffer from a history of sexual or physical trauma, which the dominant partner uses to their advantage. They will exploit the submissive partner's vulnerabilities by first creating an environment of total support, showering her with gifts and affection. Then, once they've earned her trust and dedication, these criminals will slowly push their significant other's boundaries until they've gained utter control over her life, pulling her into their crimes. It's a gradual and insidious pattern that, over time, can delude the submissive partner into believing that they want to engage in criminal activity. In our clips today, we'll walk through the many variations on this twisted dynamic and see how these relationships play out through a series of infamous crimes. We'll begin with a clip from ParCast original, Crimes of Passion covering one of the most well-known cases of killer couples, Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow became household names in the 1930s after committing robberies and murders across several states. But before they were notorious criminals, Bonnie and Clyde were two young people struggling to reconcile their dreams of fame with their impoverished circumstances in Depression-era Texas. Both were desperate to break free of poverty and found opportunity in each other Together, they created a world all their own, believing that crime was not only necessary, but that it was the best shot at improving their lives. Yet only a month after meeting, Clyde, already a seasoned criminal, was taken to prison.
1: Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow wasted no time falling into their brief and infamous relationship. After their meeting in January of 1930, they took to each other with the immediacy of new love, spending their first month in each other’s company, more often than not. They were two peas in a pod. Clyde came from poverty and dreamed of making music. Bonnie came from poverty and dreamed of making movies. They shared a natural energy and charisma and valued their individuality. They were both short, he 5 foot six, she 4 foot 11. And above all, they both were desperate for any positive change in their lives. Bonnie took Clyde to meet her mother, but Clyde, perhaps ashamed of his campground home, perhaps afraid of his mother's strict and terse judgment, did not reciprocate. Emma Parker, for her part, did not like Clyde. After all, he was the son of a junk man, the lowest rung on the totem pole of one of West Dallas's poorest neighborhoods. Bonnie's father, when he was alive, was a bricklayer, a man of substance. She deserved a similar type of gentleman as a suitor. But something about Clyde, whether it was his nice clothes or his charisma, did soften Emma. In her own words, he certainly was a likable boy, very handsome with his dark wavy hair, dancing brown eyes, and a dimple that popped out now and then when he smiled. She even let Clyde stay at her house the February after they met. She made up the couch for him to sleep on. He was in perfect view of the front door when a knock came early the next morning. But Clyde didn't notice when it was opened and two Dallas police officers entered. The first thing they did was wake him up and taunt him about his brother, saying, if you got any rabbit in you, You'll run, like Buck. Clyde smiled and took his time getting up. He looked at the police officers with the ease of seeing an old friend and cocked his mouth into a dimpled smirk. He rubbed his eyes and said, Buddy, I'd sure run if I could. As calm as Clyde was, Bonnie was the complete opposite. She screamed and threw herself on Clyde, begging the officers to leave him. Seeing the love-struck young woman, the pair of officers felt sympathy, but said there was nothing they could do. Clyde was wanted in several counties. For his part, Clyde remained collected. He smiled and held Bonnie's arms and told her, it was all all alright. He'd be out soon. They'd be together.
0: Following that clip from Crimes of Passion, Bonnie helped Clyde escape from his Texas prison, marking the beginning of their four-year-long criminal spree and romance. Every subsequent robbery and murder the couple committed only seemed to amplify the intensity of their love for each other. And in turn, each crime became bigger and more daring than the last. In their eyes, they were rightfully earning the fame they'd so desperately dreamed of, but in reality, Bonnie and Clyde were feeding into an intense codependency that only spiraled them closer to disaster until 1934, when they were both killed in an infamous shootout with police. But while the dynamic of Bonnie and Clyde is defined by a mutual adoration and a common goal, not all criminal partnerships demonstrate such reciprocity. Our next unhealthy relationship examines 18th century French con artist Jeanne de Lamotte and her affair with French nobleman Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan. Their fiery romance was a means to an end. Jeanne was using Rohan for a grand and elaborate scheme. The following clip comes from an episode of ParCast Original Con Artists, in which we cover Jeanne de Lamotte's notorious scamming career. Poor from birth, Jeanne used her dubious claim of royal blood to give herself and her husband noble titles. But when the con woman grew unsatisfied with the pension she received from the royal crown, she struck up an affair with Rohan, a diplomat in the French court, in the hopes of increasing her allowance. Soon, Jeanne earned Rohan's trust and sympathy through a combination of sex and manipulation.
2: Returning to Versailles meant that Jeanne got another bite at the apple with Prince Louis de Rohan. And this second meeting proved far more fruitful. When Jeanne met Rohan to plead her case for a larger pension, he was moved by her story of her impoverished childhood and forgotten royal lineage. Rohan advised her to arrange an audience with the Queen and to make her case directly. He apologized that he couldn't be more helpful with this due to his contentious relationship with Marie Antoinette. But despite his lack of access to the Queen, Rohan proceeded to make inquiries on Jeanne's behalf. Clearly, Jeanne's story had made an impact on the Cardinal Prince. But unfortunately, his efforts to loosen the purse strings were thwarted. The treasury he found had been depleted by supporting the American Revolutionary War. Jeanne continued working on Rohan, wielding her Valois family name as a means of establishing a shared connection and generating trust, an essential step in any successful con. They took pleasure in each other's company, and as they grew closer, their relationship shifted from officer and petitioner to something much warmer. Just how warm their relationship became is a matter up for some interpretation. Most historians seem to think it likely that Jeanne and Rohan's relationship progressed to the carnal, at least briefly. Rohan was something of a womanizer and Jeanne was determined to use any tool at her disposal, including her body to achieve the fabulous lifestyle that she believed she deserved. The letters that Jeanne and Rohan exchanged grew increasingly fiery. But as hot as their affair might have burned, for unknown reasons, the fire quickly extinguished itself. However, the pair remained close after their physical relationship ran its course. Rowan continued to assist Jeanne in any way he could, which included providing financial support.
0: In that clip from our con artist's episode on Jeanne de Lamont, Jeanne managed to successfully leverage sex and sympathy to convince Prince de Rowan to subsidize the lavish lifestyle she desired. But soon, it wasn't enough. So Jeanne devised an entirely new scheme that exploited Rohan's vulnerability. He'd previously committed a faux pas against Queen Marie Antoinette and was desperate to regain her good graces. Jeanne persuaded Rohan to write letters to the Queen, apologizing for his past transgression. When he received warm replies from Her Highness herself, he was elated. But in reality, the letters were forged. The Queen asked Roa to buy an absurdly expensive necklace on her behalf, and Roa, eager to do anything to curry her favor, happily obliged. Once she had the necklace, Jeanne broke it apart, selling the jewels on the black market. When Jeanne's con and Roa's involvement were exposed, it would result in a trial that would help usher in the French Revolution. Jean de Lamotte and Prince de Rohan's affair demonstrates how a criminal's desire to manipulate their partner out of money can lead to false intimacy. But what happens when a victim must enter a relationship in order to save their own life? Coming up, we cover the proprietary dynamic between bandit queen Poulan Devi and Vikram Mullah. Now back to the show. So far, we've seen criminal relationships propelled by an intense mutual love and a shared delusion of grandeur, as well as those that are one-sided schemes to exploit one partner's vulnerabilities. But sometimes, relationships are born out of a need to survive. In our next clip from ParCast Original, Female Criminals, we'll discuss Pulan Devi, an Indian outlaw from the 1980s. But before she was the bandit queen, Devi was a low-caste woman who was married off as a child bride at the age of 11. Devi's marriage was wrought with physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her much older husband. But when she escaped, at age 12, her life was hardly better. Her family claimed that by leaving her husband, she had shamed them. And so, when she was kidnapped by a band of outlaws led by Babu Gujar, Devi was entirely alone left to the mercy of a man infamous for his brutality.
3: After torturing Fulan, Babu Gujar yanked her from man to man in the gang, asking who wanted a taste of the Sudra woman. You might recall that Sudra, or Shudra, is the name given to the laborer caste in India. As it had always been in her life, Fulan's caste dictated even how she could be treated when kidnapped by bandits. Hope of escape was useless.
4: She was considered a ruined woman, after all. One who had lingered too long at the fringes of a society that had rejected her. There's no indication that anyone in Fulan's village tried to rescue her.
3: And yet, she had grabbed the attention of an unlikely ally. On her fourth day with Babu Gujar, a man entered the tent where she was tied, put a gun to Gujar's head, and shot
4: him dead as he slept. Gujar was killed by his second-in-command, a man named Vikram, who came from the same Mala boatman subcast as Fulan. Some
3: believe that Vikram had admired Fulan for years, watching her from afar as he and Gujar's gang carried out crimes in the region around her village.
4: Others simply believe he couldn't stand watching such a systematic humiliation of his caste. It wasn't the fact that Babu Gujar had repeatedly raped Fulan that had angered Vikram to kill him. It was that his leader had shown such disrespect to Vikram's caste.
3: Basuli Deb, writer of the book Transnational Feminist Perspectives on Terror in Literature and Culture, notes that it's exactly this type of selective bias to protect his caste instead of caring about a victim's pain that allows violence
4: against women to thrive even
3: in the modern world.
4: Yet, Vikram's murder of Gujar represented a dangerous and unprecedented step for bandits in India, In a single act, a low-caste man took control of an upper-caste gang. There were going to be severe consequences for Vikram's betrayal. After he
3: killed Gujar, Vikram untied Fulan. He declared that Fulan would be his woman and remain unmolested by the rest of the gang. A paper-thin promise that gave Fulan two choices. Become someone's sexual property and experience freedom in other areas of her life or defy him and suffer for the rest of her short, painful existence.
4: Fulan was no fool. She agreed to become Vikram's sexual partner. Years later, when she was asked if she voluntarily stayed with Vikram, she simply said that property never has a choice. In private, and to those she trusted, however, she said, quote, Vikram was the first man to treat me like a human being, not a slave or a piece of flesh, end quote. With Vikram,
3: Fulan enjoyed a level of agency and freedom that she had never known.
0: As we learned in that clip from Female Criminals, while Devi was finally liberated from Babu Gujar's incessant abuse, her freedom was still extremely limited. She was left with little choice but to agree to be Vikram's woman. Devi had no idea what would become of her if she rejected him. After all, he had just murdered his leader right in front of her. Facing a decision between more brutal torture and becoming Vikram's property, she chose survival. But when Vikram died a few years later, Devi was finally broken from her bonds. She went on to become an integral part of her new lover's bandit gang and led them into a vengeful massacre. In a rare case, Poulon Davy had considered the criminal life her possessive relationship had pulled her into and chosen to take control. Our final clip covers a relationship in which the submissive partner was not forced but rather slowly manipulated into becoming her lover's accomplice. In this episode from ParCast Original Serial Killers, we focus on one half of the Sunset Strip killers, Carol Bundy. By the time Bundy met her partner, Doug Clark, she had already suffered three abusive marriages and was in a relationship with a man who used her for money. Clark, however, was charming, and Carol fell for him quickly. But because Carol was so overwhelmed by Clark's affection, she was blind to his manipulation. After years of verbal abuse and boundary pushing, his total control would eventually lead Carol to murder. She answered a personal ad and got involved with Art Pollinger, a studio executive.
3: Pollinger enjoyed Carol's company and appreciated her sense of humor, but he grew concerned for her welfare when she told him about her relationship with Jack. Pollinger recognized that Jack was using and manipulating Carol and urged her to close the joint safety deposit box that she had opened with Jack.
0: Pollinger drove Carol to the bank so she could close the box, But when carol opened the joint safety deposit box she discovered six thousand dollars was missing jack had stolen her savings alarmed pollinger convinced carol to put the rest of her money in a separate checking account before jack could steal it
3: carol decided to confront jack about the theft but jack swiftly manipulated the entire situation to his advantage instead of taking responsibility for stealing carol's money he accused her new boyfriend, Pollinger, of being the real thief. Jack claimed that Pollinger had Carol open a new checking account just so he could steal her money.
0: This manipulation worked. Carol broke things off with Pollinger, the only man in her life who seemed to have her best interests at heart.
3: Carol told Pollinger that she was ending things because he only saw the good in her, and she feared how he would react if he saw the real her. Pollinger realized that Carol was simply not psychologically ready to leave her abusive partners. So the two went their separate ways.
0: By late April of 1980, Carol was struggling to maintain her relationship with Clark. He was acting bored and indifferent around her. He was no longer interested in hearing about her day, and verbally abused her by calling her motormouth.
3: Clark was devaluing Carol in order to solidify his control over her. And with Carol now desperate to regain Clark's full attention, he decided that it was time to see how far he could push Carol's boundaries.
0: One night in the spring of 1980, Clark told Carol that he wanted them to share their sexual fantasies. He explained he had read in a magazine article that this would make them grow closer together.
3: Clark then described disturbing fantasies about bondage and torture, watching Carol's reaction closely.
0: He was pleased when she confessed that she also had dark sexual fantasies. She confided in Clark that she had experimented a little with dominance play.
3: But then Clark decided to push Carol's boundaries even further. He introduced murder into their sexual fantasies. He warned Carol that a woman who really loved him would be willing to kill for him. When Carol showed no revulsion at Clark's murderous fantasies, the aspiring serial killer knew he had found a potential partner in crime.
0: In that clip from our Serial Killers episode on the Sunset Strip Killers, Carol's lover, Doug Clark, revealed his dark fantasies about raping and murdering women. But soon, they would become a reality. Clark would go on to kill and rape six women and Carol helped him hide the bodies. Carol herself was only directly responsible for one murder, that of her former lover, Jack Murray. Carol confessed to Jack about what she and Clark had done, but then, fearing he would tell the police, she shot and decapitated him. Ultimately, Carol confessed to authorities about this murder, as well as all of the crimes she and Clark committed together. In exchange for testimony in Clark's trial, Carol received 25 years to life imprisonment instead of the death penalty. Carol's psychologist, Dr. Blake Skurla, believes she took part in the killings because of unresolved trauma she carried from her abusive father. Skurla explains that Carol acted out the sexual abuse she suffered in the form of murder. The unhealthy relationships we discussed in today's clips range in their intent and vary in their crimes. From the passionate mutual delusions of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow to Doug Clark's insidious manipulation of Carol Bundy. In a rare instance, con woman Jeanne Lamotte led a dominant dynamic with her male lover that served to line her pockets. Meanwhile, Pulan Devi had no power whatsoever as she lived her life as Vikram's sexual possession. But every clip has demonstrated the dark side of love and romance. What's glorified in the media as a kind of cure-all for the ills of the world is capable of being corrupted, whether by force, deception, manipulation, or delusion. We've seen the many forms that twisted love can take. Thanks for tuning in to Podcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on unhealthy relationships. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on suspicious celebrity deaths. Why are we so intrigued when a celebrity dies? And what happens when another celebrity is accused of playing a part in their death? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Crimes of Passion, Con Artists, Serial Killers, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.